0: Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Hoare, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, July 30th, 2017, on the basis of Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. Do you know what really bothers people about God? That there's all this evil going on in the world and that God doesn't do something about it. From terrorism to child abuse, cancer, corruption, injustice, violence, oppression, why doesn't God stop some of that? But do you know what else bothers people about God? That there's all this evil going on in the world, and that God would dare to do anything about it. These images of God being up in heaven just seething with rage or passing judgment or raining down fire and brimstone, certainly sending people to a place called hell, those are such backward and barbaric ideas to modern people, aren't they? How dare God do any of that? You see the contradiction, right? I mean, on the one hand, sometimes people are bothered by what God doesn't seem to be doing in our world, and on the other hand, sometimes they're bothered by the very thought that he would do anything against evil. In fact, just to illustrate the point, I'm guessing you could take the very first verse in the words that are in front of us today from Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all the wickedness and godlessness of men. And you would have one person who'd maybe say, Is it really? If it is, I don't see it. But another person might look at that very same sentence and they'd say, how dare he? If that's what's going on in our world today, then, then I don't want anything to do with God or religion. And, and as you can imagine, sometimes the same person might kind of come at it from both perspectives at the same time. So this topic of God's wrath, what it is, how, how God administers his wrath in our world today, I'm guessing that it's a topic That doesn't just bother people that are out there, but maybe even sometimes bothers the people who are in here. After all, that's exactly what happened in that parable that Jesus told that you heard me read earlier. Those servants of the landlord, that's exactly what they were. They were bothered by what they saw going on and growing in their master's field. And so, thankfully, as we turn our attention to these verses from Romans chapter 1 today, we get some much needed answers we will see what God's word says about God's wrath, what it is and how he reveals it in our world today. And we'll not only come to a greater understanding of it, but we'll also come to see the beauty, the wisdom, and the goodness of our God in the process. In other words, as we look at these verses, we will see that there is very much a method to God's madness against and toward the evil that goes on in our world. And we'll see that in three specific ways this morning. First of all, we'll see it In the basis for God revealing his wrath, we'll see it in the strategy God uses for revealing his wrath, and then finally we'll see it in the purpose for which God reveals his wrath. So first of all, the basis for God revealing and unleashing his wrath in our world, what is it that really makes God upset? What gets him so angry that he is going to step in and act in our world? Paul says it this way, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So the key word in that verse is the word suppress. In other words, God does not reveal his wrath against people who are ignorant of the truth. He reveals it against people who willfully and stubbornly suppress the truth. And Paul goes on in the next few verses to explain exactly how that works. He says, God creates people with an innate sense that some sort of higher power up there exists. Their gut tells them that God exists, and the vast, beautiful, elaborate universe around them confirms it. And yet even though deep down they know that God exists, they don't like the implications of that. They don't like that if if God really is the one who created us, Then our love, our praise, our honor, our glory, our service and devotion really all belong to him. We would much rather give those things to someone or something else. And so Paul says that people decide to make a little exchange. Rather than giving their glory, their worship, their devotion to their creator, they give those things to someone or something that God has created. I think it's easy to see why that would make God upset, isn't it? I mean, if someone that you love, someone that you care very deeply about, is about to willfully exchange what is true for what is false, what is good for what is evil, what is beneficial to them for what is harmful to them, what is, is beautiful and helpful versus what is ugly and destructive, if, if you really love that person, odds are you're going to do something, you're going to step in and somehow intervene. Picture a, a mom with a young toddler who is trying to teach him that the stove is hot and shouldn't be touched. And yet, of course, the toddler is just entranced by that warm red glow coming from the surface of the stove, and so he gets closer and closer. He starts to reach out his hand. He's about to touch it. If that mom loves that child at all, what is she going to do? She's going to step in and intervene. And so, yes, there there very much is a method to God's madness, and we see that, first of all, in the basis for him revealing his wrath in our world. When, When he sees his creatures, whom he deeply loves and cares about, willfully exchanging what is true for what is false, what is helpful for what is harmful, he steps in, he naturally does something about it. So what does God do? Talked a little bit about the basis for God revealing his wrath. What is the strategy that God uses? Paul puts it this way. He says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So Paul is saying that, that when people willfully exchange the truth about God for a lie, when they, when they start worshiping something God created instead of their creator, that exchange is also accompanied by very strong desires in their hearts. So if greed, I'm sorry, if money takes over in your heart as your God, then then that will naturally be accompanied by strong feelings of greed. If pleasure takes over as your God, that will naturally be accompanied by this insatiable appetite for whatever it is satisfies that pleasure. If success and accomplishment and power are your God, then you'll have this intense drive to succeed and accomplish things and, and maybe even trample on others' along the way so how does God deal with that when those things happen you'd think that maybe God would just step in and intervene and stop them but Paul says that the opposite is true that the ultimate manifestation of God's wrath is not when he steps in and stops those things in our lives it's actually when he steps back and allows them You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but maybe when we we hear this phrase, the the wrath of God, whether we consciously try and do it or not, we kind of come up with this picture in our minds of God being up there in heaven with kind of this giant cosmic laser gun that he's just pointing down on earth, and he's got the crosshairs pointed right at us, he's got his finger on the trigger, and he is just waiting, just chomping at the bit for the opportunity to pull it. In the same vein, we might... Think of this concept of hell as as this place that God just spent lots and lots of time sort of deviously cooking up, and he's just giddy at the thought that he could actually send someone there and lock them up for all eternity. In reality, Paul says that the, the ultimate manifestation of God's wrath is not him raining down fire and brimstone, but him stepping back and allowing people to pursue those strong desires for their counterfeit gods completely unbridled and unhindered. It's when you set out on that sinful course of action and there's no longer someone there to lovingly call you to repentance. It's when those feelings of shame and feelings of guilt just finally and forever go away. It's when there isn't an immediate painful consequence that results from your sinful behavior. It's when you're able to pursue those things without any recourse, without any hindrance, that is the ultimate sign of God's judgment. And in fact, hell is really that very same thing just carried out on an eternal scale. God removes himself from the equation and people just finally and forever get exactly what they want. Picture again that, that mom with the toddler who is reaching for the stove. I'm guessing that the first two, three, four times he reaches for it, she's going to intervene and stop him. If he persists, she might even give him a slap on the wrist or a a spanking even. Is that her wrath? Well, sure, but it's not the fullest manifestation of that wrath. No, instead, if, if she becomes convinced that no matter what she does, no matter how many times she stops him, she knows she can't always be there. She can't always intervene and stop him from doing what is harmful to him. Maybe she would even come to the point where she would decide the only way For him to see the truth that she has been telling him is to let him touch the stove. There very much is a method to God's madness, and we see that in the strategy that he uses to reveal his wrath in our world. When he sees his children refusing to turn away from what is false and turn to the truth, eventually he he stands back and lets them see for themselves what he's been trying to tell them. Now of course what that means, as in the case with the toddler and the stove, someone's going to get hurt deeply and painfully. When God allows people to pursue the sinful desires of their hearts, not only will it hurt them, but odds are it will hurt a lot of the people around them. What is God doing? Why would God do that? We've seen the basis for him revealing his wrath, we've seen his strategy, but what is God's purpose For doing this? What is he trying to accomplish? To answer that question, we need to sort of press the zoom out button a little bit and remember exactly where we are in this letter that Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. We're right in the very first chapter, and just before these verses, Paul had written the sentence that sort of serves as the focus and the theme for the entire book, the entire letter to the Romans. He said this In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So Paul had just made the point that in the gospel, we get this message from God, that the one and only way that we can stand before God and be righteous, be found innocent and worthy of eternal life is through faith in Jesus. Now, Paul goes on for really the better part of two chapters talking about the wrath of God, but then he's eventually going to come back to this topic of righteousness before God and everything that Jesus has done for us. And when he does, he does so in a very striking and memorable way. He reminds people of what was known as the Ark of the Covenant. So if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament or even if you've seen the Indiana Jones movies, you know a little bit about what this is all about. The Ark of the Covenant was this special chest that was located in the very inner room of the temple. And inside of the chest, among other things, there were the two stone tablets that had engraved on them the Ten Commandments, God's expectations for everything he wants us to do and not to do. That was inside the chest. And on top of the chest, there was this special cover with the the angels whose wings are touching in the middle. And that special cover came to be known as the mercy seat. So once a year, the high priest would walk into that inner room of the temple, He would sprinkle a bunch of blood from two animals that had been sacrificed on that cover. And then God would sort of manifest his glory. He'd fill that room with his glory and sort of, as it were, come to sit on top of that cover. That was his throne. That was the mercy seat. So the lesson that God was teaching his people was simply this. Because of our inability to keep the Ten Commandments, you and I need a cover standing between us and our holy God. You and I need protection from the wrath of God that our sins deserve. And because that sin has brought death into the world, that protection also needs to be accompanied by the shedding of blood. In other words, that cover needs to come at someone else's expense. That protection needs to come through sacrifice. So when Paul eventually comes back to talk about the work that our Savior Jesus did, do you know what he refers to Jesus as? He says that Jesus is the cover. Jesus is that cover, that shield that stands between us and God and all of the wrath that we deserve as a result of our sins. The result of that is that all, all who put their faith in Jesus, all who seek shelter underneath that cover never have to worry about experiencing the wrath of God. None of God's wrath actually gets through to everyone who's under that cover because all of the wrath falls on Jesus. All of the wrath fell on Jesus as he suffered and died for us on the cross. So why does God simply allow sin to run its course? I can tell you, if God's sole purpose was for us to have an easy and pleasant life, he would employ a much different strategy. There is no way he would just stand back and allow sin to run freely. But God's got a much bigger purpose in mind than that. He wants us to see sin for what it truly is. He wants us to know that if we step out from underneath that cover, all there is and all we deserve from our God is wrath. He wants us to constantly seek refuge underneath that cover because as much as it pains him to watch us suffer in this life, it pains him far, far more to think about us suffering for all eternity. You know, these these verses from Romans chapter 1, they're kind of a technical and I'd maybe say cerebral explanation for how and why God reveals his wrath in our world today. And yet really what Paul is saying is no different than what Jesus said in a very picturesque way in that parable. What does God do about the weeds that the enemy sows in God's field? What does God do about the evil and trouble going on in our world? Surprisingly enough, he he stands back and he lets it grow. Probably not the strategy that we would employ, but there very much is a method to his madness. Because in the process, he does two things. First of all, he makes evil its own worst enemy. He forces evil to ultimately right and carry out its own undoing as it manifests itself for what it truly is. And secondly, in the process, he is able to rescue his people even though they are so closely surrounded by and even sometimes ensnared by that very same evil. Does that mean that as we see the evil going on in our world today, we won't be bothered by it? probably not. But as we see and as we're reminded how God deals with it, hopefully we'll see the beauty of it. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.